I couldn't protect my own child. And when I saw the look in this father's eyes, he could not save his child. It was that minute I knew I want to spend the rest of my life just helping fathers protect their children when they're in impossible situations. Today I sit down with Jason Jones, a film producer and human rights worker who has devoted his life to defending the world's most vulnerable, from persecuted religious communities in China to the families of America's Afghan allies. He is the president of the Human Rights Education and Relief Organization, HERO, and founder of the Vulnerable People Project. We always say, what did the Germans know and when did they know it? But the question we need to ask ourselves is, what did we know about the Uyghur genocide? What did we know about the Falun Gong? When did we know it? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Jason Jones, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Jan, it's a privilege to be with you. Jason, you have an organization that works in many parts of the world helping what you call vulnerable people. Um, you know, examples that come to mind in Afghanistan, you actually are able to work in Afghanistan right now, supporting some of the hardest hit folks, people who have lost family members. It's just kind of an amazing story to me. You're also working with, you know, vulnerable people in a number of other parts of the world, um, notably with this uh, uh, Catholic bishops project that you have going in in China, basically. And I want to talk about that. How did you get into all of this? Yeah, well, thank you for the question. Um, you know, the David Mamet, one of the greatest playwrights of the past 100 years, said that writers write for the same reason beavers gnaw on wood, because their teeth itch. And um, so I run an organization that I founded over 20 years ago to defend the vulnerable from violence um, because my teeth itch. And my, and my teeth itch at the thought of, of children being exposed to genocide, to democide, trapped in total war. And um, the idea for my organization was really birthed when I was a young soldier. Uh, when I, was, I joined the Army on my 17th birthday. I dropped out of high school and on my 17th birthday I joined the Army. And I joined the Army because just a few days before my 17th birthday, my high school girlfriend rode her bicycle uh, five, mi five miles to my house uh, on a Saturday morning and walked up the stairs to my bedroom and woke me up with the words, I'm pregnant. And so my mother had me when she was 16. And so my dream as a young boy was just, I wanted to be a father of an intact family and my wife and children would be happy and safe and this was my daydream, and I thought being a professional football player was how I would do it. But when I found out my high school girlfriend was pregnant, uh, I knew that I could join the Army because a friend of mine just did it through a special program for troubled youth, which I, I was, I knew I qualified for that designation. Um, while I was in basic training, my high school girlfriend hid her pregnancy and took vitamins and wrote me letters. But, uh, about two weeks before I was to graduate and come home on a Sunday morning, I get a phone call. I was cleaning pots and pans and a friend um, came running into where I was in the kitchen and said, come out here and answer the phone. Your girlfriend's crying. And she was crying like I had never heard anyone in my life cry. And the only way I can explain it to you is that her soul was crying. She kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it wasn't me. And then her dad grabbed the phone and said, I know your secret and it's gone. I took her to get an abortion. And a drill sergeant hung up the phone and uh, punched him. Another drill sergeant grabbed me into my 
uh, by my collar and th threw me, dragged me into my captain's office and threw me into a chair. And I just kept crying, saying, call the police. My high school, girl, my, my girlfriend's father killed my baby. And when I explained, my captain, a big army ranger, just began, tears was pouring down his eyes, um, just listening, well, looking at me cry, made him cry. And when I explained him what happened, he looked at me confused. He said, why would I call the police? Abortion's legal. You know, I never went to church a day in my life growing up. I knew nothing about politics. This was before Google or even 24-hour cable news. I did not know in our country that it was legal to destroy the most vulnerable members of our family, the child in the womb, until I found out that my child was destroyed. And I can't express to you how shocking that was to me. Um, and it was just maybe four months later, I was on my first overseas deployment, and I saw a father with his son who was very sick and dying when we were on a forced road march through rural the mountains of Thailand. And I remember just locking eyes with this father holding his son, who was not much younger than I was 17. I, you know, I was young. And this boy was probably 13, but he looked like he weighed 60 pounds. And I asked the translator what was wrong with him, our interpreter, and he said, I don't know, but he's dying. And I, the father and I looked at, locked eyes, you know, and we were in the most rural part of Thailand, in the mountains. And I, the, the look in that father's eyes, holding his son as he leaned up against the fence, was exactly how I was still feeling. It was that minute I knew I want to spend the rest of my life just helping fathers protect their children when they're in impossible situations. Because I thought I was a strong young man. I wanted to be strong. My whole life was like, I'm going to be strong, I'm going to be intelligent, I'm going to be hardworking, and my family will be safe. I couldn't protect my own child to birth. And when I saw the look in this father's eyes, he could not save his child. And I've really come to understand that vulnerable people are not weak people. They're strong people placed in impossible situations. And so I founded my organization so that I could stand with strong people who are placed, have been placed in impossible situations, and I can inspire others to stand with them. And then when you have enough people standing with these vulnerable communities in impossible situations, they become possible situations and then we can, we can help rescue them from, these, from the catastrophes they find themselves in. It's kind of remarkable, given the U.S. exit from Afghanistan, um, and you know, it's where relations have gone subsequently, that you're actually able to offer you know, food and, and fuel um, through your organization in that country. Yeah, my work in Afghanistan came again with a phone call. I was fighting uh, COVID pneumonia, was very sick. I was lying in my couch in my home office in early August of 2021 when my phone rang and it was a young woman who used to work for me. I also make films. And it was a young actress from Hollywood who said my, one of my best friend's mother-in-law, her husband's Afghan, he made it an anti-Taliban film and she got a death letter that when they come to Kabul, they're gonna kill her. Can you save my friend's mom? And so I said, let me see what I can do and I was taking my prednisone for the pneumonia and I opened up my laptop and I grabbed my phone and I called people I knew at the State Department. I just re started reaching out to people I knew everywhere and I was able to help this woman. By the end of the first day, word spreads, you know, and I had like 12 names in an Excel file. By the end of the first week, I remember I had 576 names. And that's how it started for me. If I just saved my friend's mother, uh, if I save 
okay, these 12 people, a friend of mine who was an army captain called me, can you save my translator? A pastor called me, can you save the small group of Christians? By the end of the first week, you know, we're approaching 600 people. Okay, if I can just get these 600 people out. And then three weeks into it, I realized I needed to hire staff and build out what we call Hope for Afghanistan. And we, from that, we built a, an, an operation that has evacuated thousands, resettled thousands. Um, but going into the winter of last year, it was a brutal winter. COVID policy already was driving the world to the brink of the greatest famine the world has known since World War II. And then now you have Afghanistan's economy in total collapse and a tough winter coming down. It gets very cold there. And we were raising money to evacuate and resettle folks, pay for visas, pay for safe houses in neighboring countries. And I looked at how much money we were, you know, we were raising. Um, we raised a bit of money. And I said, how do I deploy this to do the most good? And one of my Afghan partners said, you know, there's mass starvation in these rural villages. And we had sent teams and we, we, they would go into villages and it would look like families were sleeping, but they were dead. And um, we broke it down, it was $250 to feed a family of seven through the winter and then also to get them coal. We raised a little over half a million for our evacuation initiative, but no countries were granting visas. I said, let's switch gears and let's get every penny that we've raised out is food and coal for this winter. And we launched what we call Coal for Christmas. Uh, I can say as a matter of fact, I have delivered more coal on Christmas than, than Santa Claus ever did. <laughs> um, and just this winter alone, 500,000 meals have been delivered by VPP since Christmas Eve. And we've delivered coal to communities all over Afghanistan. Oftentimes my teams are bringing coal over on donkey through icy mountain passages. Um, and that's our goal, to reach the ethnic minorities, the Hazara, there's 30,000 Christians, but also the widows and orphans of our Afghan allies who were killed in action, who now have no one to support them and obviously the animosity of the, of the government now in power in Afghanistan. So through what we call Operation Noble Brother, we're seeking to identify every widow and all of the orphans of our Afghan allies who were killed in action and make sure we give them uh, the support they need to live. But it all started with one phone call from a young woman who worked for me that said, save my friend's mom. You know, in these kinds of situations, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine how, you know, this government that has a lot of animosity to the people you just described is gonna let you operate there. How does that work? Well, the Taliban is not monolithic. And um, one of the things I've come to discover as I've worked around the world is we show up on the scene and we're looking for white hats and black hats. I don't look for hats. I look for suffering people and I serve them, whatever the risk. And when you serve vulnerable communities, you become as vulnerable as they are, period. You can be in the United States, you stand up to the CCP, you're placing yourself in trouble. I mean, Ennis Cantor Freedom got kicked out of the NBA can you imagine? He got kicked out of the NBA for speaking out against the genocide. Really unbelievable stuff. But this is how it works. So we're not naive. We know that there's risk with our work. You know, I've been in Sudan, nose to nose with Al-Qaeda. I've been, I could look at ISIS in Iraq and they could look at me. Um, but I would say in Afghanistan, the situation on the ground is there's 50% of the country is starving to death. 90% of the country is experiencing hunger. 50% is fighting for their life. This is really unbelievable. And I don't think anybody, I mean, ISIS 
and maybe some more extreme elements of the Taliban are probably not happy with what we're doing. But our teams are, are, are allowed to, to operate to serve these communities. It is a bit of a mystery to us, I have to say, but we just put our nose down and work. And I'm pretty much of an open book. I'm a writer, I have a podcast, and uh, I don't have a filter. They know who we are, they know who I am, and they know my motive. And my motive is really just simple. My teeth itch, there are children starving to death, their fathers looking at their children starving to death. And I want to give those fathers the support they need to keep their children alive. That's my goal. It's not politics. It's not, I'm not there to proselytize. I am there to keep as many children alive through this brutal winter as I can. That's why VPP is there, and that's why the people who work for me are doing the work that they're doing. Well, and it sounds like it would be incredibly bad form for the know, governing bodies there to say, sorry, we're not going to let you deliver these things. The question I have, though, is it's these some of these specific people that you're getting this to have this are particularly being watched, right, by the government or, you know, persecuted in some way. Definitely persecuted. They're, yes. And there are people that we have to support that, you know, that when we deliver food to them, it's a little tricky. Most definitely. Yeah. We always look to serve the most vulnerable. We start at the bottom. Like, who is starving to death? Like, sometimes other groups will say, why are you going to these rural areas? I'm like, because they're dying. Like, 10% of the village has already died. So that's where we're starting. And I make that even clear with our partners on the ground sometimes. They're used to dealing with Western NGOs who like clout, who like influence. When people call me and they start bragging about who they're close to, I just say, well, yeah, we don't help you. We're the Vulnerable People Project. We're not the wealthy and connected grifter project. There's a, there's a lot of other organizations that you can reach out to that get excited to help uh, powerful people who will grift with them. That is not our mission. And if you go to our website, thegreatcampaign.org, you could look at the people we serve, paying for surgeries, delivering medicine. Uh, these are the people that weren't even being reached oftentimes uh, when the US was there. And, and that's just my mission. You know, I, I, look, I look to the image of the Pieta, this beautiful work of art of the Blessed Virgin Mary with her son draped across her lap. And as a Catholic, I see that as the second person of the Trinity, God, the word of life, the creator, lifeless across a creature's lap. A creature out of all eternity that was created to bring God to the man. The man. But you have a weak creature holding the, the Creator. And that's our work. We're weak. I'm a weak instrument. I wish the people that I served had somebody more capable than me to serve them. It's embarrassing sometimes because they're so smart, they're so virtuous, they're so talented, they're so long-suffering, um, they're so kind, and they got me. And I'm sorry, I wish you had somebody smarter than me, more connected than me, more influential than me. I'm what you got, and it's a little embarrassing. Um, these people that we support are so noble, they're so hardworking, they're so brave. They might be the poorest people in the world, um, but they're also the most impressive and, and, and most beautiful people in the world. You know, just something that strikes me with everything that you're saying here is just, you know, with these kind of impossible situations, you just gotta try, right, and see what happens, and that's kind of what you've been doing, right? Yeah, they're not impossible, right? I always yeah. tell my team, there's no impossible situation. We have problems that seem impossible, but they're not.
We have to stop, we have to think, we have to have fortitude. We have to have manageable goals that bring us into the right direction. You know, write that press release, get that news story, then raise the money you need, then successfully distribute it. You know, it's just, I'm an infantryman and I look at these, I was in the infantry in the army. When you're in an ambush, when you're surrounded by the enemy and it's chaos and, it's, and you smell human flesh and there are bullets flying and bombs going off and you can't see your hand in front of your face and you're scared, you're trained in an ambush to shoot the target in front of you and keep moving till there are no more targets. I tell my team, we save the life in front of us and we don't stop moving till there are no lives to save. Well, that's not gonna happen. So no matter how confusing it is, no matter how fearful we are, no matter how hopeless it seems, our job is just to save the life in front of us, that one life. And sometimes people, we just had a kind of a notable rescue that got international media. And my friend said, did you feel good? And I have to say, to be honest, I didn't feel good. I just didn't feel bad that day, you know, because um, we know who we didn't rescue today. We know how many people are starving to death today. But maybe that day I just didn't feel so bad. You know, talk about impossible situations, right? Yeah. The Vatican has a deal with the Chinese Communist Party around ordaining bishops. You know, there's the, a lot of people don't know about this. Maybe I'll get you to kind of reprise it for me, but there's a Catholic, state Catholic church and there's the official Catholic church. And what a yeah. bizarre reality, right? Bizarre reality. And you're going after these people that are, there's actually persecuted Catholic bishops in this structure, and there's yeah. still this cooperation. It's hard to, hard to imagine how this could be possible. It's confusing, isn't it? You know, um, one of the things I always try to express to people, the vulnerable are not always poor. Sometimes they're wealthy people. Sometimes uh, the wealthy, the snow at the top of the hill, seen in the valley. So. You look in, in China right now, the CCP has Jimmy Lai, a Catholic layman, very prominent, very wealthy, will die in prison. Probably will die in prison. And the hierarchy of the Catholic Church in Rome has been silent. You have Cardinal Zen. You know, I am an American lay Catholic in the United States, but Cardinal Zen is, is someone I've admired greatly for years. So many of us would hope he'd be Pope. It could, just until, it wasn't until the passing of Pope Benedict, that he was even able to get a brief audience with Pope Francis. And Cardinal Zen is, is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the CCP's persecution of bishops. We have seven bishops that are, that are sitting and rotting in black prison sites. Some of them are rumored to have been killed. Uh, we have just countless thousands of Catholic lay people who are rotting away in CCP prisons. Um, they become very sophisticated in how they round people up and how they disappear them. And of course in the West there's not a peep. But the silence for me, the silence of Pope Francis, the silence of the hierarchy of the church is quite scandalous. You know, scandal means stumbling block. I always tell my team, we're going to pile up these stumbling blocks and stand on them <laughs> and shout to the world. In many ways I think that the silence of Pope Francis can be our megaphone. Why has Pope Francis been silent on the persecution of the Falun Gong? Why has he been silent on this great genocide of the Uyghur, an ethnic and religious minority, three million in concentration camps, who were just six centuries ago Nestorian Christians? 
and they are suffering a great genocide, unimaginable evils, organ harvesting, it's unspeakable and unimaginable. Pope Francis has never said the word Uyghur aloud. Never said the word aloud. We always say, what did, America, what did the Germans know and when did they know it? They didn't know much. <laughs> I mean, of course they didn't. They lived within a tyrannical regime without mass communication. And what they knew was rumor that could probably easily be dismissed. But the question we need to ask ourselves is what did we know about the Uyghur genocide? What did we know about the Falun Gong? When did we know it? What did we know about American cor corporations using slave labor to manufacture their products? If we were to put a blue light, metaphorically speaking, through all of our homes, like it would be a crime scene. Our electronics, our clothing, the cotton in our clothing, the people who manage, we'd have blood all over our houses. And we know it. And the thing is, we know it. And we know it. And I'm not saying that the guy who wakes up every morning, drops his kids off at school, and drives down to the firehouse has to organize to free the Uyghur or to free our bishops who have been disappeared. But what I want to know is why the hierarchy of my church that is virtue signaling on popular issues like global warming and the rainbow flag issues all the time, why they can never just mention the Uyghur, why they can't fight for their own. Jesus Christ said even, even the Gentiles, even they love their own. Well, are we worse, are we worse than pre-Christian uh, revelation pagans, Gentiles that, that we don't even remember our own? Are we embarrassed to remember our own? You know, people will often commend me for advocating for other ethnic and religious minorities but they look at me cross-eyed when I stand up for my own. If I'm not willing to fight for Catholic bishops that are imprisoned by the CCP, you should trust my motives on why I'm fighting them for the Uyghur. Is it to be liked? Is it to show how broad-minded and tolerant I am? Is it virtue signaling? No. Uh, I fight for people, and I don't look at their religion, and I don't look at their ethnicity. It's the idea that people are being pummeled, thrashed, brutalized, tortured, imprisoned and killed while well, I live in a world of unimaginable comfort and luxury with access to all sorts of technologies and opportunities to speak out for them and I'm not going to? Why? Because there's some great streaming series I gotta watch at home? No, 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 no. I'm gonna fight for the Uyghur, I'm gonna fight for the Falun Gong, but you can bet I'm gonna fight for my own too. I'm gonna fight for my co-religionists. I'm gonna fight for Catholic priests. I'm gonna fight for Catholic bishops. I'm gonna fight for a Catholic lady like Jimmy Lai who by God's grace, he will not die in prison. I'm sure he's fine with it. I'm sure he's sitting there, he's praying, he's getting closer to God, but that's his business. But my business as a Catholic layman in America is to get him out of prison and to get our bishops out of prison and to bring down the CCP because the CCP is a menace. First to the people of China, all of the people of China, and then to its neighbors and now to the world. Explain to me how you think it's possible for you know, the Catholic Church to have made this deal with the regime? I mean, I bet you know the answer. I, I think we know how it's possible. I, the only excuse, I mean, the only, it was Cardinal, dis, former Cardinal McCarrick, disgraced, a pervert, brokered a deal, a known pervert and predator, brokered a deal with the regime that deals in using sex 
to blackmail people. And you send the most blackmailable human being in God's creation to broker a deal with the CCP. And it appears, I mean, we don't know the terms of the deal. We hear that it's $2 billion, it's a billion dollars. But here's what I know, that when I spoke at the International Religious Freedom Conference last year, Nancy Pelosi and Blinken, Secretary of State Blinken, condemned the CCP. Cardinal Dolan was silent and criticized the United States, but was silent about the CCP. The only speaker at the International Religious Freedom Conference um, that was silent two years ago was the, the representative from the USCCB. When Pope Francis has never once mentioned the Uyghur genocide, that is not banging drums demanding that, that the CCP cannot make its own bishops. Could you imagine if Donald Trump just started making bishops? This is just un Antifa. I'd rather have Antifa start ordaining bishops than the CCP. This is just really unbelievable stuff. Silence. There's a famous scene speculation but of a Chinese woman talking to Pope Francis and an audience and he slaps her. Famous scene. Uh, I talked to a journalist who said she was asking him why he had been silent on the Uyghur genocide. I don't know if that's the case. I, I do know he swatted a, a Chinese woman away who was pleading with him over something. I also know that our church was silent on the genocide of the Assyrians and Chaldeans at the hands of ISIS in Iraq. I was there documenting it and I had a Chaldean priest grabbing me with tears in his eyes saying, why is the Pope beaming images of wild animals on St. Peter's because he was bringing attention to global warming with Al Gore, yet not beaming the images of my children who are being murdered by ISIS? I said, I don't know. He said, has the West forgotten us? And I had to tell him, I said, Father, the West doesn't even know you exist. This is sorrowful. There's only two ways to order the world. You ignore, trample, and shunt aside the vulnerable. Or you order your, your community to serve the vulnerable. It could be your family. Does your family shunt aside the member that struggles with a physical disability or a mental illness or an, or, or an addiction? Do you shunt them aside, trample them, and abandon them? Or do you order your family to serve them? Same thing with a, a town a nation state, and, and, the, and our family, the human family. There's no middle. Either we order our communities to advocate and serve those who are most vulnerable, or we shunt them aside, trample them, abuse them, and exploit them. Right now, it appears, like most sad times in human history, we're exploiting, shunting aside, trampling, abandoning. And this will only end in catastrophe for, for our posterity. And so I look at my work as really, I'm just racing to save the world so my posterity can live in peace. That's it, that's, that's how I see my work. One, one person at a time. One human being at a time. You know, as you were describing this, I was coming to the same conclusion that we, we sadly have become less and less of this mind of ordering communities to help the most vulnerable. It's a good way of looking at the world, frankly. You know, you're also doing work in Ukraine, of all places. It's the topic everyone's talking about, actually. The light is being very much being shone on Ukraine as a concept. Of course, at the same time, very few people really know what's going on over there. But you know a little bit of what's going on over there through your project. So tell me about that. 
Yeah, again, sort of our work is we never, we're not looking to be do-gooders gallivanting around the world looking to, to you know, throw lifelines. It's always we're, we're called. And we got requests early on after the Russian invasion. Again, our success in evacuating people from Afghanistan got a lot of international media attention. So there were NHL players whose fathers and mothers were stuck behind, enemy, you know, behind Russia's lines and others who'd asked us to help evacuate their family members. And I had no previous involvement in Ukraine, and it was sort of the same thing. I opened up my laptop, I picked up my phone, and I saw what I could do to help evacuate family members of people who reached out to me, and we were able to get those family members out. That led to us buying vehicles for groups that were helping us evacuate people. Then that led to us putting food, and, and then we discovered this great need for insulin. That's something I've learned, that insulin is very important in times of crisis. So we bought a refrigerated truck in Hungary, and, and, then, and since the very first weeks of the inv invasion, we have our insulin trucks, going, a truck going all over the country. We partnered with an organization called Solve Care that asked us to sponsor 700 beds for young orphan girls that were sent to the West alone and were being really captured by uh, human traffickers, sex traffickers. So we helped build those shelters. We partnered with Ryan Hendrickson. He wanted to found a new organization. He was, we partnered with us and then we launched this new organization through what we call our Olive Grove Project where we plant olive trees with new organizations that we help create. And Ryan Hendrickson with his tip of the spear landmine removal um, now is removing landmines from the very front. Thousands of landmines have been removed. We bought landmine removal robots, all sorts of, of landmine, the most sophisticated landmine detectors that can even detect landmines that don't have metal in them. And again, even in Ukraine, where I want to be very clear, I advocate and have advocated from the very beginning and negotiated peace. And I think the silence of the world on why are there, there no one calling for peace agreement? Why did General Milley come out? I hope this isn't too controversial. Why did he come out in the first weeks of the war and say our goal is not victory but a quagmire? Uh, I don't see that using the, you, the people of Ukraine as a means to our end uh, is, is virtuous. And I can't see that in the long run this, this in any way advances our national interest. Maybe the interest of the military industrial complex, maybe the interest of these, these uh, big entities that profit off of war reconstruction. Um, but I'm just thinking of the Ukrainian folks who are just trying to farm and their tractors are hitting landmines and artilleries and killer drones are, are flying into their buildings. But even in our work in Ukraine, again, it's like we're going what other people won't do. You know, we're removing landmines from active battlefields um, so farmers can farm. These farmers were unbelievably courageous. They'd never stopped farming. And Ryan Hendrickson was there clearing their farms so that they could farm. Now as Russia has done their, um, their tactical retreats and the military just kind of continues to do what it is the mission of the military, then the civilians flood back in. And now we have just women and children losing their life and their limbs with all these landmines that were le left by the Russians. And so, again, we just, I see our work as Ryan Hendrickson, this Green Beret who had actually had his leg blown off in Afghanistan, wants to go there um, and remove landmines to help fathers keep their children's bodies intact and keep them alive. I'm all for that. You know, this is the picture that you don't hear about as often, right? It's just kind of the, the realities that people are facing on the ground, you know? And it's something that you can actually, you know, speak to having people there. 
you know, and I the, went there. You know, and I went there. I went there very early on in the invasion. We had medical teams to treat the refugees as they were leaving. One of the things that I will say that was unbelievable, unbelievable. I think Poland should win the Nobel Prize. The country of Poland should win the Nobel Prize. I was trying to, I uh, had a young woman who was my diplomatic liaison, and we were going to check on our medical teams in Ukraine that were, we set up to treat the refugees. And I was trying to prepare her for the sea of human sorrow, that just, what she was about to witness as we were getting close to the border. It wasn't there, you know. Because Poland did such a good job of Polish families of welcoming, bringing in the Ukrainians, caring for them. The, 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 the food trucks that were along the route, the best food I ever had. And I haven't heard the story. I mean, Poland's response to this was absolutely unbelievable. And I have never seen anything like it. I've been in a lot of places where there's war and there's refugee crisis, and your heart never recovers from the wounds. But this was something like I have never seen. And I have not heard. I've not, it, they, people just took it for granted. And it was just so organic. It was so organic and so overwhelming that there really never was this, this mass crisis at the border that one might have expected. Yeah, I mean, I, I know from people who were there and some of our reporting, especially early on when, when, we, when we sent people there to see what was going on, it was very much organic. I mean, millions of refugees, it's, you know, Poland suffered at the hands of Ukrainians in World War II and hasn't forgotten, Poles haven't <laughs> forgotten this, right? Um, of course, it suffered at the hands of, of Russia repeatedly over the, over the decades and centuries. But what it, it was very curious to me and very interesting that there was this organic understanding of Poles. And this is like, you know, this is not, there was no government propaganda campaign to try to convince people. This was just everybody understood. Whoever comes out of Ukraine, we're going to help them and you know all these homes opened up it was very interesting to me and well, i just think a lot of people in the west might not understand why do you do you have a sense of that understand why 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 it was so it was so obvious for poles right to i mean i, mean, I can i mean i can i have i have my know, own thoughts I, I think on this that right? there's no better way to be empathetic than to experience suffering and poland has experienced immense suffering in fact, I look at, at the Afghan people, this might, as you're Polish, this might seem strange to you, but I have a real affinity. My patron saint is St. Maximilian Kolbe. I'm friends with Jerzy Popiescu's family. I worked on a film on Father Jerzy, and I'm working on a film now on Maximilian Kolbe, Max and Me. They'll be coming out in theaters this year. It's a big budget animated film on St. Maximilian Kolbe. But I also have an affinity to the people of Afghanistan. And if you look at Afghanistan and Poland, these are two countries that have been placed these countries have been placed in impossible situations. They've been menaced, you know, Afghanistan by the Russians, uh, and you had the war with Russia, the war with the United States, you had, um, you had Poland, they were invaded by the two most powerful militaries in the history of the world, collapsed in on them at the same time. St. Maxim, uh, I mean, uh, St. John Paul the Great in his book, Memory and Identity, his last book, which is really the most, it's, it's his best writing, he reflects on his life and the invasion first by the Nazis and then of the, of the Soviets that he experienced. And he said when the Nazis came in, he knew that they wouldn't be there for long because the evil was so rabid and his theology taught him that evil is the absence of being and evil regimes 
don't last very long. And he said, I knew they wouldn't be there. And then, but then the Soviets followed right in. And he knew, understood that this regime, the Soviet Union would collapse too, but it would maybe be a little bit longer. And he weathered this. You, when you think of what the people of Poland weathered, this is a people that have earned their empathy. They have learned empathy the, the only way you can. There's no easy way to learn empathy. Sympathy, maybe, but empathy is only earned through suffering. And so every family in Poland knows intimately the sorrow and suffering and anguish and pain of these U Ukrainians that showed up at their border. And so the only thing they could do was respond. You know, the gentleman, I have a friend who's a Grammy-nominated musician who lives in my neighborhood. And when I needed someone to be my manifest director for my work in Afghanistan, I knew that it was going to be, I knew that I was luring someone into a, uh, something that's going to change their life. Because, not, you know, they're going to look at passports and they're going to be putting in children's passport photos and names and ages into a database and some of these children are going to live and some of them are going to die and they're going to experience all of this. I'm like, who can I ask to do this? It was my friend Armin Chakmakian, Grammy-nominated musician. Um, he's Armenian. And I knew because of his family's experiences in the Armenian genocide that he grew up hearing these stories that he would have the empathy and the strength to do the job that I was asking him to do. I used to, I used to joke with my Afghan partners, you know, I only wish Poland was your neighbor <laughs> because Ukraine's been so much easier for us to evacuate and rescue people and move them to safe conditions. Where in Afghanistan, not so much. I said, I just wish you were neighboring Poland. It would make my, my life a lot easier, my job a lot easier. This is a fascinating perspective that I had, frankly hadn't thought of. So thank you for that. You know, uh, but speaking of you know Armenians, um, you are you're actually actively involved in a project for Armenians, a very small one, from what I understand. Just kind of give me the overview. Yeah, yeah. it's really it's really sorrowful. Um, there is a corridor to an ancient community where Armenians have lived since before recorded history, Artsakh, and. They are being starved out by Azerbaijan. It's a campaign of ethnic cleansing. There's 120,000 souls there. What makes this to me so troubling is I wrote a book, The Race to Save Our Century, that came out on the 100th anniversary of World War I. We looked at the Armenian Genocide in World War I as sort of those two big dominoes that fell that led to a great catastrophe, which was the 20th century. And Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And so here we are, just a little over 100 years later, we have Azerbaijan and Turkey uh, conspiring to cleanse the Armenians from a place where they have lived since before recorded history. And, and the world is out to lunch. No one's paying attention. Hitler famously said, the world, who remembers the Armenians? That was his answer to his generals who said, the world will remember what we did to the Jews. We can't do this. And he said, who remembers the Armenians? Well, here we go again. Who remembers? It's really quite startling. Like, it would really be as if we saw Nazi Germany a Kristallnacht again. Could you imagine if you turn on your television and you found out that Jewish shop owners across Berlin today had their windows smashed out? You'd say, what is going on? Here we go again. Well, what we are seeing today with Azerbaijan is, is a Kristallnacht again. 
and we have forgotten. And if we don't hold the line here at Artsakh, there's no line to hold. Really. There's no line. What line? If we don't hold the line with the Uyghur genocide, if we don't make a stand against the CCP, what, what, what line will we hold? And then what is this going to mean to our posterity? What is this going to mean to our children and grandchildren? And so all of us, when we order our life to serve the vulnerable around us, we're ordering our lives to serve our own descendants. We're being thoughtful of them. So if we don't stand with the Armenians who now are being starved out, my, our grandchildren will start, be starved out. If we don't stand with the people of China who are being smashed by brutal tyranny, if we don't stand with the people of Hong Kong who have everything they knew ripped away from them, the people of Taiwan who are being menaced, if we don't stand with them, well, our children will, will live in tyrannies. This is how it works. So Jason, what I'm thinking here is a couple of things, right? When you look at the reality of communist China today, we know there's one official genocide happening. I think there's at least three, and we're doing business. You know, peop I was just reading, you know, Bill Gates, for example, in an interview is saying that we should, that China should adopt greater governance roles in the world and it, with, this, with this type yes, of regime. This is quite frightening. Right? Yeah. And, you know, in 1930s, in Germany, we knew there were incredibly racist laws, but we didn't know there would be a final solution. You know, that, was, that hadn't been formulated exactly yet. exactly right. Right, so it just makes me think, like, what are we doing? Um, that's one thought. The second thought is, here in the U.S. and frankly in the West, a lot of people are, you know, very concerned about, let's say, more authoritarian practices across across a variety of realms, and they're thinking about that, and they're thinking to themselves, we have to take care of what's going on here in America. We need to secure freedom and liberty for Americans before we look out into all these places that you just described. And there's, you know, there's perhaps a, some case to be made here. So how do you, how do you, how do you square these things? I agree, with, but I agree with that 100%. You know, we have to take care of home first. Um, but sadly, I have a phone in my pocket that was probably assembled by slave labor. I have clothing in my, in my um, drawers that has cotton that was picked by Uyghur slaves. Could you imagine? I do. You do. We all do. This is just a fact. So it, it does impact me. Uh, my country, through promises around Afghanistan, like Mardi, Gras breed, uh, like Mardi Gras beads, promises I didn't commit to. I'm not an advocate of regime change wars. I've opposed every regime change war. I'm not an advocate of nation building. Uh, these are myths. These are lies that we sell to people so that we can do $2 trillion grifts over 22 decades. I knew that two decades ago. Um, but if, if my wife writes a check, I got to cash it. <laughs> I got to put money in the bank. And my country threw promises around Afghanistan like Mardi Gras beads, and then we, we snuck out in the middle of the night. And uh, so I feel a, a responsibility there. Um, we sabotaged a peace agreement in the very first days of the invasion between Zelensky and Putin. Now we're sending tanks. We are pressuring Germany to send tanks. Yeah, sending panzer tanks towards Russia seems like a really good idea for peace, doesn't it? Um, the Ukrainians, my teams in Ukraine said the Ukrainians say, the Americans are willing to fight to the last Ukrainian. So I would agree with all of that. 
um, I want, I don't, I, it breaks my heart that we've behaved so ignobly on the world stage. And that Disney makes Mulan a film that perpetuates genocide. And they shoot the live action version of the film in Xinjiang, East Turkestan, and the cast and crew were bussed past concentration camps. Could you imagine if in 1941, Disney made a film in Germany where the Jews were the villain and they bust the stars past Sachsenhausen? <laughs> this is bizarre. We live in a very bizarre world. And so I would say that all of us, whether on our corporate boards and our local communities or how we shop, like me and my family and I, like we'd like to go to thrift stores and you know, you want Nike? You're gonna get Nike made in 1982. We're gonna go down to Goodwill. We'll find your Nikes down there at Goodwill. Because uh, you're not going to buy a shoe that was made by a slave today, I can promise you that. So I, I agree with all of that. But for me, it, it just really comes down to this, that why was I created? What is my purpose? And then how should I live my life? And I want to live my life in a way that's noble. I want to be gentle around those who are vulnerable. I want to think of those who the world has forgotten. I do this exercise before I go to sleep where I will close my eyes and I will think of the world, I will think of man and myself through different theologies. And then I ask myself, if I was Muslim, how do I want to live? If I'm Hindu, if I'm an atheist, if I'm an atheist, how do I want to live? And well, I want to dance in front of the abyss by living a life so beautiful that nothingness is shocked. I want to stand with those who are crying, who are sad, who are lonely, who feel forgotten. The great Catholic French uh, anthropologist René Girard says, when you serve with the vulnerable, you become as vulnerable as they are. And I think that's true. And that's helped me understand why I fail in so many of my attempts to care for vulnerable communities and do nothing but put myself into vulnerable positions in my organization so many times. So, I'm, so I understand that, that that's how it goes. But there's a mystery that you cannot shake. It's very strange. When you choose to live your life to serve those who the world who are abandoned, you're never alone. You never feel alone. And I will say that when we live a life to serve those who have been abandoned, it's, you feel, I feel guilty sometimes on how come I have the best friends in the world how come my family seems to be so happy and beautiful in a world that's so lonely and sad? And it seems like with, through my work, I'm chasing, I'm running in one direction, but I keep ending up in the other direction. So I think if, if we all order our lives to serve those, you know, our, our, our cousin who has an opioid addiction, our best friend who's struggling with bipolar disorder, uh, that young woman who works for us who's in severe depression, and if we order our businesses, our families, our state and local governments to serve those who are vulnerable, if we as a world say, we're not going to abandon the Armenians, we're not going to abandon Falun Gong, the Uyghur, we're not going to abandon Jimmy Lai. When we think like this, we live like this, we're, all, we're going to live a beautiful world. The world is becoming darker and more sorrowful every day. And we become more self-obsessed. All we're doing is chasing happiness and we've never been more unhappy. All we're doing is swiping right, swiping right on these dating apps. We've never been more lonely. 
And so the world's going in the wrong direction. I just hope the work of the Vulnerable People Project, in a little way, is an exemplification of how people should live. And as a Christian, I believe it is true that I find Christ in those who the world has despised. And that's who I want to stand next to. Well, Jason Jones, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, it's a privilege to be on this show. This, is, this show is a big show, and my, all my friends, this is like their favorite show. So um, you're helping me impress my friends, so thank you. Thank you all for joining Jason Jones and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.